Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, this is Lily Gorin with the New Books and Political Science podcast on the New Books Network. Today, I'm joined by Elizabeth Cohn, author of The Political Value of Time, Citizenship, Duration, and Democratic Justice, recently published by Cambridge University Press. Elizabeth, Elizabeth's book explores the concept of time, an idea that we engage with daily in so many ways, but not a concept that many of us think about in political terms very often. Cohn's book takes up this idea of time, duration, temporality, and why, especially for democratic regimes, these ideas are vitally important and rather underexplored. But I will let Elizabeth Cohn tell us a bit more about both the ideas themselves and the need to consider them as we discuss her book, The Political Value of Time. First, I would ask Elizabeth Cohn to tell us a bit about herself and how she came to this particular project. Hello, Elizabeth. Hi, Lily. Thank you so much. Sure. Um, so um, I am I'm associate professor of political science at Syracuse University, and I am a political theorist by training. But I'm oh, I've always been really interested in kind of the concrete problems um, that we find in politics, rather than some of the more abstract ideal theory or history of political thought that my other wonderful colleagues. Um, engage in. And I work on citizenship and rights-related issues. And as I was finishing my first book, which um, is Semi-Citizenship in Democratic Politics, also by Cambridge University Press, I um, was just kind of noodling around with some of the, some things that were relatively marginal to that book and um, just started noticing that there were a lot of circumstances in which citizenship was contingent on things like deadlines and waiting periods, um, that whether we were extending rights to people who were trying to become citizens or taking rights away from people when we punish them, um, or, or deem them incompetent, that, that lots of, lots of cases involved, um, something temporal, And so it was a very kind of, I mean, it was really like one of those great career moments where you're able to transition smoothly from one project to another. I don't expect that to always happen in life, but nice, (laughs) you know, going, especially given the academic, uh, our own um, kind of temporal rhythms, it's good with the first and the second project to have that happen. And so um, there, there was a particular case that I was looking at that really got me thinking about um, about how we inscribe boundaries on our populations and citizenries. And, and then it just kind of unfolded from there. And, and so my next sort of question or, you know, sort of broad um, approach is to ask you to tell us a little bit more about what you understand to be as you title the book, The Political Value of Time, since this is such a kind of both abstract and yet concrete temporal um, understanding mm-hmm. that we sort of 
move between um, sort of the abstract nature of time, but also, as you say, there are deadlines, there are waiting periods, there are um, processes that are circumscribed by time. How does that connect in this broader concept of the political value? Sure. So that is both an excellent and a really difficult question. Um, There is just a ton of work kind of talking about in, in many different disciplines, in philosophy and anthropology and sociology, really less um, in political science than any of our uh, um, sibling disciplines. Uh, there's a lot of work, though, kind of trying to parse people's understandings and experiences of time. And um, I would say it's, it is you know, there are essentially contested concepts and then there are really essentially contested <laughs> concepts. And time is probably one of the most essentially and most contested concepts that we nonetheless um, draw into our work both explicitly and implicitly constantly. So I, I, I start out by kind of trying to clear the field a little bit and saying, I'm not, I'm not going to define time. <laughs> 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 I'm not going to even engage with um, a literature review of everything that's ever been written about what time means. I just really want to deal with the way in which the state approaches time. Um, so I really want to talk about kind of um, what ha- the, the the supposedly scientific measurements of time that states rely on when they impose calendars and deadlines and things of those nature. And then after we do that, after we look at how, why the state does this um, and, and what the state means when it uses ostensibly scientific measurements of time to, to structure politics um, after we do that, then we can reintroduce you know, okay, so my um, experience of time as a person with a lifespan or my experience of time as um, as somebody with a career trajectory or my experience of time as somebody with an illness or uh, um, a plan to have children or any of these things, we, you know, all of that can come back in. But it comes back in, you know, as concepts that are still ultimately kind of under um, being governed by by the state or, or have to answer to the state. So this is just one very narrow slice of how we think about time, and that is the, the these um, supposedly scientific measurements of time that can be calculated um, and then um, used in different ways by the state. And that's that gets to this concept of the political value itself. Um, that time is also a stand-in potentially for other things. Um, and, and I think that in, in the book, you sort of note that the political value is the component, obviously, that you're looking at in terms of how the state structures um, an understanding of time or implements it, but that there isn't necessarily a lot of consideration of what that means. Can you speak to that a bit? Yeah. So, you know, I, I think that um, I kind of use, you know, I'll, I'll keep, ref- I keep referring back to some of the same examples in the books just for the sake of consistency. Um, and, and so one of the things I talk about in the book is kind of how we 
extend citizenship to people who don't have citizenship. And one thing that almost all countries do is um, we make people wait. So it is, you know, not the case that you almost anywhere can enter a country or fill out an application and, you know, somebody looks it over and then you just have citizenship, right? There's almost always a, a probationary period, a waiting period. And you can talk to people about this and they will kind of say, well, of course. But then if you say why, um, you either won't get an answer because people won't have considered why they just take it for granted, or you'll get a range of answers about why people should have to wait for citizenship. So you might get an answer saying like, no, we want to make sure these people are really committed. Or you might get an answer of somebody saying, all right, um, well, we want to give you a chance to get acquainted with the country and develop some civic knowledge. Or you should probably have some ties to our country, and those ties come through relationships or labor um, or investment or something, and all of those things take time. So lots and lots of things are going on when you have that discussion. Um, one, you know, one thing that's going on is disagreement, and we can we can come to talk about that disagreement and why time helps us get past those disagreements about what we think citizens should demonstrate before they um, are, are are given the nod to naturalize or would be citizens are are expected to demonstrate. But so there's that disagreement, but. Each of, each of the things that I described as a potential answer to that question are processes, and they're really important political processes, and they're particularly important to democracies. Um, I think more important to democracies where civic knowledge is really important to the act of, of being um, collect, collective self-government and, um, and where we, have, we do have a sense that a certain type of character is um, potentially really important to being a democratic citizen um, and where we take our relationships really seriously again because we are engaging in this in this collective project um, so those are processes that are important to democracy and they're important to the development of citizens and we don't really know exactly how those processes, come about or take place. Like we might have some answers, but again, we wouldn't agree, but we can agree that they all require time, that none of them happen in an instant. Um, and so learning about the three branches of government so that you can take the citizenship <laughs> test. Exactly. Like that's not going to happen overnight and you, and becoming, you know, American or French or British or German doesn't happen overnight. And, um, doing some important work in a country. None of it happens overnight. It's, you know, character development, work, learning. Um, these are all things that require time. And so there's this kind of instrumental thing, like you just need the time to do those things so you can become a citizen. And then it also, the time kind of proxies, because in fact, we don't ever go back and really thoroughly check. We could do a qualitative check of whether somebody has developed relationships with other citizens. Um, but we don't do too much of that. We give a test which is significant, but certainly not thorough. Um, so the time becomes a proxy for all these things about which we don't agree, but that, you know, 
we think are important to being a citizen. And that doesn't just happen with naturalization. It happens with many things. So when we incarcerate somebody, we also expect a process to happen. We definitely don't agree on what that process is, but we know it takes time. And so we are going to come up with a formula for how much time a particular person who's committed a particular crime ought to spend incarcerated. And and so these become the, as you say, they're sort of proxies, but there isn't necessarily a clarity with regard to why, um, you know, somebody gets sentenced for a number of years um, or why it may take 20 years to become a citizen of the United States, um, aside from the fact that we know it takes a certain amount of time either to, you know, sort of be rehabilitated um, or to understand the civic nature of the country. Um, And that once that time has elapsed, um, you can assess whether the person has made that adaptation. Is that sort of the political value component? So you might assess or you might just, because we are a big bureaucratic state, you might just let the time the assessment, right? And simply say like, okay, the clock ticked past five years, you are eligible. Um, But the value comes from the fact that we value those qualities and those processes that lead to those qualities. And because we value those things and we're measuring their development in units of time, the time acquires value, right? Because we have said it is really valuable to have a good democratic character. And we don't know how. We could never agree on how to test that. And we don't really know how to do that, even if we were to just designate one person as the decider. Um, But we we do, you know, we can essentially do something that um, large bureaucratic states need to do all the time, which is commensurate. And that is when you turn something qualitative into something quantitative with a number. So the time acquires the value because we value the processes that require the time. And we we commensurate, in other words, make all these very, very different experiences into something the state can process by measuring it with a number. And that number is the, the years or months that something requires. And, and this, I mean, again, this is kind of this both concrete, because it's a number of years or months, but it's incredibly elusive, this concept, um, because as you say, it's taken on this particular value within our democratic regime or other democratic regimes. Um, can you talk a little bit about this kind of tension between the concrete actualization of months or years in our concept of time and the fact that it is, in fact, an elusive idea? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, states traffic in telling us, you know, this is real <laughs> and, and, and like not, you know, not every um, concept that the state imposes is necessarily one that, that um, we experience as quite as real as the state tells us it is or in the real in the way that the state tells us it is. And I think, um, Rather than giving it a totally abstract explanation, I'll I'll, um, head to chapter two and give an example from chapter two of that, of when that happens. Um, So, you know, the border is a concept that a lot of people, um, a lot of people 
have started to question. So they're historians of the border, they're geographers of the border. And one of the themes that's kind of consistent throughout that work is that, you know, you could look at a map and see a border, but if you're actually there, um, borders are a little bit more ambiguous. You might not know if you're crossing over the border um, and um, you might not be able to see it in the sand if you're not in a place where we've put up a fence um, and like a river, you know, probably is a border, but which part of the river is the border? All these questions about the border. Um, and and one of the things I point out in um, chapter two is that um, if we can't see a geographic border, one thing states can do to make the border more real to us is make a temporal border. And in fact, we do this all the time. Um, so states will kind of assert themselves by, in almost every constitution, pointing out when the state was instantiated, when it began. And this matters, right? Because if you want to be included in the state, you're probably going to have to be a part of the state at that point and, and after that point. And before that point, your membership uh, may not, it may not, if you were just a member before that, it may not matter anymore because now there's a new state. Um, and, and so, you know, you make the, we can make the border real by creating this temporal boundary, a deadline, or simply one moment in time that distinguishes a before and an after that are different states, different political states of being. Um, so if it's okay for me to go on for another minute, um, I, I said that I kind of transitioned to this project by looking at a case, and it's this case that citizenship scholars know, um, nobody else should know it, <laughs> because it's not that relevant, but it's like the founding case in Anglo-American citizenship law. It's called Calvin's case. And Calvin's case is just like a case that was brought about whether somebody um, could do the signature citizenship thing, which is um, passed down uh, and inherit land um, in England. Um, and the issue was, um, can somebody who was born before the union of the Scottish and the English thrones in which a new king um, is, is put at the head of this, this growing empire, um, is somebody like really a subject of that king if the union didn't exist when they were born. So they were not born into the allegiance of the king. They were born into the allegiance of a different sovereign that doesn't exist anymore. And so, you know, the jurisprudence that comes out of that is basically like, no, you, you, to be a natural born subject, which is something we're hearing a lot about right now, because of course, there's questions about um, the 14th Amendment in the United States and whether people born on this territory ought to automatically have citizenship. So, you know, right now it's you're just born here as a natural, natural citizen. Um, these were natural born subjects, but you couldn't be natural born to something that didn't exist when you were born. And so that moment, that one moment, the union of the Scottish and the English thrones becomes a boundary and you were a so you were a sovereign subject if you were born at the, or after that moment, but you couldn't be if you were born before it. And so that one moment carves a boundary, creating the, the subjects, the, not quite citizens, right, but the subjects of this king. And that's 
that's something that we see in all these different constitutions. And it is taking something that's really, really abstract to get back to your original question, which is like, what's, you know, what's the boundary around the people or what's the border around a a regime or a state? That's a really abstract concept. And we don't do a good job of marking it physically. Um, but we can mark it in time and keep very good records about who is where, when, under what circumstances. And that temporal boundary is really, really stark. And if you start thinking about all the deadlines that we experience in our political lives, you'll realize that we come up against temporal boundaries all the time. So some of the examples I use in the book are curfews, which... Um, to many readers may be unfamiliar, but if you are um, a person of color, uh, live in areas where it's common um, for police to impose curfews, if you are a young person, your uh, mobility is restricted regularly by a curfew that says you can't be outside in public after a certain time. That's a boundary, um, but it's a temporal boundary, right? Um, We have... uh, uh, lots and lots of temporal boundaries crisscrossing the country in the form of visas, which expire at specific points in time. So, you know, we're hearing tons and tons about undocumented immigration and border crossing, and we're going to spend X billion, $25 billion, you know, building some kind of fortification on the southern border. But, you know, just under half of the people in the country in the United States without um, legal status came into the country with legal status and then overstayed their visa. They're now out of the legal body politic, but they the, this temporal boundary kind of crossed over them. They didn't cross a geographic boundary um, to become undocumented. Um, so we, we hit these all the time and they make something that is can't be physically made very concrete into something that's nonetheless um, not that abstract. It's pretty real. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's one of the strengths of this book is to sort of go through the discussion of these sort of abstract concepts. But as you point out in lots of places with these kinds of examples, the temporal sort of, as you say, sort of wrapping around you um, in ways that we don't even think about, um, you know, sort of going through passport control uh, and and so on. Is your passport expired? Is your driver's license expired? Um, that, that these are ways that we don't even imagine ourselves being constructed within a time regime. Yeah. Um, Those are such good examples, too, because every time I'm listening to or reading somebody on Twitter going on and on about, like, illegals and this and that, I'm thinking to myself, like, have you never had anything in your life expire? (laughs) Including your library card? (laughs) Yes. Yes. (laughs) You know, haven't you at some point discovered that your license or your registration or, like, you know... um, Some deadline you'd missed? Like, this is not that different. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's just like, and there are lots of them, and they are not necessarily on the top of one's list all the time to pay attention to. Definitely not. Um, You know, I have I have a family, and we each have passports that expire on in different years, and so yeah. 
To make it extra convenient. Exactly. (laughs) Because if you're under 18, you only get a passport for five years. Right. Which I would like to say is, you know, something that I actually talk about in the book, not the passport expiration so much, but this idea that like we could measure maturity, (laughs) the maturity, I guess, to renew your own passport, among other things. We measure that using time, even though we understand maturity to actually be not a quantitative thing. We know, especially... Um, those of you with with families and children, we know that it is something qualitative. <laughs> it is a quality that develops, you know, not at the same rate for everyone. Yes. I mean, my students just sort of point out, obviously, the, the sort of disconnect between drinking ages and voting ages and draft ages. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, there's this question of why, Um that as as you're sort of saying this question of when do we gauge maturity to be yeah. uh, as as a as a citizenry as a country as something that is opposing a deadline on you um yeah and- i mean we could test people right there are there are there are tests that are no less contested than a temporal measurement would be if we actually stop to think about the 18 or 21 you know, your marks, but we don't do that because <laughs> we would fight more about that than we will about this one number. <laughs> that, you know, is, has also changed, of course, over time. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. And, and so, I, I mean, I think as you just explained it in really interesting ways with regard to the Calvin case, and I always think about the the Dartmouth case also, which is about the contract, not necessarily about the individual, um, and whether the contract existed before and after the United States changed, became the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, but into this, you know, we sort of step as political theorists. And one of the points that you sort of bring up in the in the book a bit is that political theory, unlike, as you say, anthropology and philosophy and some other fields, has been dealing less with time. Um, and where where and maybe how do we as political theorists think about time and and is there a need to sort of redirect our efforts, shall I say? Yeah. So I do think there's there are some really good pieces of work on politics and time within political science. Um, they, you know, there's the wonderful work by Karen Oren and Stephen Skronik on political time, which I like very much. I tend to look at that as work about context um, more than about time itself. I understand that it is, you know, talking about political rhythms and patterns, um, but it's, it is very much about context. I think there's Paul Pearson has done um, really interesting work on political time. And then within kind of the most, the centermost part of political theory, Robert Gooden has done um, really interesting work that's now being taken up by um, a, a new generation, um, people like Julie Rose, on how the important um, free time in um, in Julie Rose's terms uh, is Gooden um, got us started by thinking about how our time is structured, um, how much time we have to actually do democracy, how much leisure time 
um, which is something that ancient political theorists direct our attention to as really critical to doing democracy. Um, you know, how, how do different states allow us or not allow us to have the time we actually need to do, do democracy and, and, and to be in a position where you really have no control over your time and no leisure time, which are two separate things, um, you know, is a, it's a problem in a democracy. And he, he, um, regards that as an, an inju- injustice, right? And so those those are, I don't want to shortchange, and there's a few, few other um, scholars that are doing this. I don't want to shortchange them. I don't think, though, that um, that we've thought enough about kind of these more concrete, immediate issues in our lives, um, or, or I guess kind of almost more micro level, like these deadlines and these waiting periods. Um, so I kind of wanted to ins- insert this, but it comes at those discussions a little bit obliquely. And and in that regard, you know, one of the points that you make towards the end of the book is that because of the political value of time, that that because people are made to wait, some people are made to wait, other people are not. Some people experience a curfew, other people do not. That there are these essentially temporal injustices that occur um, for people who are in the same place, who are citizens, um, but that they are differently valued by time constraints. Um, and this becomes a question of injustice within a democratic regime. Um, can you speak a little bit about that in terms of your thesis? Yeah. So, you know, it's a, <laughs> the argument is one that, um, you know, I kind of proceed in these discrete steps. But in the heart of the book, I, I talk about the fact that because we value these different um, processes I described before, um, we value people's time. And um, that one of the reasons we like to use time to measure these things rather than like what the content of your blood is or, you know, your genetic heritage or how much money or property you have um, is that we think that time is, we think that time is a little more neutral. It's a little bit more impartial. Um, it's maybe more egalitarian and, and it's really kind of clear cut, easy to quantify way to measure these things. But at the heart of, of this is like, we're valuing people's time, um, under, you know, circumstance X and, then you start to look at situations in which people who really do seem to be very similarly situated have to wait different lengths of time to get their rights or to, in the case of somebody who's been incarcerated to get their rights back. And um, so that's on the face of it, totally unfair, right? It's unfair to incarcerate people for the same, who've committed the same crimes for different lengths of time. Um especially if all other things are equal. But once we see that we have given a political value to people's time, so more than just their personal valuation of it, we've given this political value and we've said we're doing this because it's more fair and egalitarian than looking at like their DNA and deciding what they deserve. Um, And because we gave it value, 
um, based on these processes that are really important to democratic citizenship, we're actually calling them, we're, we're telling them they're moral unequals if we make them wait longer. We're saying that this, these processes that we said took five years for you, person waiting a really long period of time, you are going to take 10 years to achieve these processes. And that makes your character somehow like weaker, less developed. You're a moral unequal of the person who only took five years. Time simply does not operate on you the way it operates on everyone else. And it's not like I think that we don't know that incarcerating some people for way longer than others, even though they're similarly situated, is unfair. I think we do have intuitions about that being unfair. Um, this is this is one way to articulate exactly why that's so wrong. Um, because if you're if you're have demonstrated in lots of ways that you actually are more morally equal, and we haven't. You know, stated on the face of it, you're morally unequal, but we're treating you like you're morally unequal. There's a disjuncture there. There's a problem. So does time then become a kind of stand-in for aspects of our sort of civic life that we don't always want to um, discuss, like race? <laughs> I think it becomes, it's a stand-in um, kind of for for things having to do with character and relationships and and knowledge and learning and things like that and um we're using where when we do something like um have you know vastly differential lengths of incarceration for um people of different races it's like this um it, it looks on the face of it like something that it looks facially neutral and this, you know, one of one of the things I do in chapter five is kind of take that facial neutrality off and say it's not facially neutral. It's not just a prison sentence. It's a statement about how long it takes a person, you know, let's say who's white or a person of color to like pay their debt to society if that's what we're doing when we incarcerate people or to re be rehabilitated if that's what we're doing when we incarcerate people. Whatever it is, we're saying it somehow takes longer for these people who we've decided have to stay incarcerated for a long period of time, that their characters don't develop at the same rate that everybody else's develop or that they can't, um, can't rehabilitate. And, and, you know, since nowhere have we said that explicitly, <laughs> but that's obviously the implicit message of that practice, then we have to go back and take another look at that practice because it is unjustifiable. It's totally unjustifiable to say that, you know, we in the United States think that um, the color of your skin is, uh, is a good proxy for how long it's going to take you to learn something. So, yeah, it, then it is a sort of odd stand-in um, that, that, as you note, is supposed to be neutral, but in fact is not. not not neutral and we can show it's not neutral if we actually like dig into what that time meant in the first place but you have to go back and look at what the prison sentence was supposed to be and then comp compare you know differential experiences of that um and 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 show you know that if we're going to use time to commensurate um because we think treating people equally is important then we have to have to actually do that yeah 
So in this regard, time also is uh, not a proxy, but but sort of time becomes a, a means of power, right? Um, as something that you sort of talk about that it it's a it's a stand-in almost. And and again, I don't want to I don't think it's quite a proxy, and I don't think you say that, but it's connected to an understanding of power because it's what is given out as, you know, the state sort of saying, well, you need to be in, you know, incarcerated for 10 years, um, or you need to wait for your citizenship for 10 years. Um, and that's neutral, but in fact, it's a form of power that the state has. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, I don't think it's wrong. I, I'm perfectly comfortable saying this is a proxy in the sense that it's, it's, Um, time becomes a proxy for things that are, that's commensuration, right? Time becomes a proxy for things that are really, really qualitative and that like we couldn't, we, we just would have trouble as a state measuring. So it does become a proxy, but underneath that proxy is something real, which is like learning is real, you know, we, and, and this, I do just a very, very, I'm not, as I said, a historian of political thought, but I do a very little bit of digging into both Plato and Aristotle, you know, Plato talking about commensuration, Aristotle talking about um, practical wisdom and like the, nobody thought that this stuff happens instantly. So there's something real there to the time um, when we start out, but then states do what states do, which is they abstract and abstract and abstract and they wield power. And so by imposing something like a waiting period or a deadline, I mean, that's, that's a means, that's a tool, that's, um, something that, you know, there's a reason Foucault spent a lot of, of, expended a lot of effort to look at things like, um, uh, prisons and schools, um, and their schedules, right? Because it is one of the conduits for state power, right. as you say. So now that you have conquered time, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, what what are you working on now? What's your next project? Um, so I'm working on two things. I, in the very, very short term, I'm um, writing um, on immigration politics in the United States. And that's something that's been really important to me all along. I write on citizenship and citizenship theory, but I'm really also a scholar of immigration. So I'm going to do some work on undocumented immigration, where that came from in the United States, the concept, how we, how kind of politics turned people who were not at one point considered undocumented into undocumented immigrants and what we can kind of do about that. Um, using existing law rather than having to make a lot of changes. And then in the longer term, um, I'm still interested in time and I'm really interested in looking at um, queuing and line standing as, as political frames. And so a lot of people read work um, by Arlie Russell Hookshield and um, others, uh, Kathy Kramer, um, just after it became clear that we'd entered a really new surprising political <laughs> context in which we were going to have um, Donald Trump as president and but in which we were having kind of this um, populist moment, which automatically means we're talking about who's really an American and and who's not and 
Um, one of the things that predates this is a lot of discussion about immigrations and immigration immigrants um, and the idea that like people are cutting in line. And so I'm really interested in that, that political frame of line cutting because we know there's actually not a line um, for almost any political good. Even if we're waiting, we're generally not waiting in line. But once you tell people they're waiting in line, it, it um, imposes all these things that we think about fairness and social justice and what should happen in a queue. And so I'm interested in exploring that a little bit more, like what it means when you get told you're in line and there's somebody behind you and there's somebody ahead of you and then there's somebody cutting um, and what it does to us. Cause I think it kind of screws us up once we, once we think we're in line, we get like angry and competitive and possessive about things and lines, you know, first come first serve, which is principle of a line is like a terrible distributive principle. Almost nobody advocates for it, but here we are now being told that, um, we're aligned. And so we start to really expect first come first serve from politics. So that's, that's, that's the other, besides immigration, that's the other thing that I'm working on and should be a continuation of these temporal themes. So when you finish the the book on um, line lines and cues, will you come back on the new books network and talk to me about it? <laughs> I, I would love to, I would love to, but if you tell me that somebody else that I feel competitive with got to go before me, I'm going to be really angry. I understand, but <laughs> hopefully you'll come on anyhow. I definitely will. <laughs> All right. So thank you, Elizabeth Cohen for joining me today to discuss the political value of time, citizenship, duration, and democratic justice, which is available from, I'm sure, the Cambridge University Press website and other places online where one can buy things online. But perhaps there's some place that you'd like to give a shout out to um, where somebody can pick up your book in maybe a bricks and mortar place. Um, so I, I, <laughs> I have yet to actually see my book in a bookstore, mostly because I have been... Uh, uh, locked in my office. Um, but I hope that maybe it's in Powell's, who knows, maybe even a used copy has made its way there. Um, and eventually I assume some copies will make it to the strand and my absolute favorite bookstore that I, um, that I go to all the time is McNally's on Prince street in New York. And if they ever had a book of mine, um, I would be absolutely thrilled, but otherwise it's, uh, I think, I think it's $24 from the places online that shall go unnamed. Okay. Thanks again for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much.